Hello, and welcome to Anthropod. My name is Beth Tredarian, and I'm here with my colleague Hilary Leatham to introduce today's episode entitled Rap on Gender and Sexuality. This episode is part of a series conceived by Hilary and myself, inspired by the anthropologist Margaret Mead and writer James Baldwin's 1970 conversation called Rap on Race. In the Rap On series, we pair anthropologists with public figures for an open conversation around a broad topic, such as race, immigration, or sexuality. We thought both the concept and format of putting an anthropologist and a public figure into conversation over pressing social and political themes would be even more generative today, when anthropology has experienced its critical moment of reflection. Even more so, by pairing off anthropologists and figures the public recognizes as authorities on the subject, the series further extends anthropology's reach beyond the discipline and, most importantly, beyond the academy. We hope this series will speak to the ways anthropology breaks down boundaries and contributes to social change. For today's episode, we invited V. Chaudhry to moderate the conversation between Samuel Delaney, who goes by Chip amongst friends and colleagues and Mary Weissmantel. Chip is a fiction author, and Mary is a professor of anthropology. V, take it away. Thanks so much, uh, Chip and and Mary, for being a part of this conversation. My understanding is this podcast has sort of touched on a lot of different big-name topics that cultural anthropologists are increasingly interested in. So this is the big thing on gender and sexuality. So the first question I have for both of you is about about those very categories, right? So what are we talking about when we talk about gender and sexuality? And I think, you know, Chip coming from a writing and literary background and Mary speaking as an anthropologist and gender studies scholar uh, and someone in conversation with a lot of people thinking about gender, what are the, the things that come to mind when you say that your work on gender or you're writing about gender and sexuality, what are you writing about or thinking about? I, I, I will throw out uh, something that, uh is always the way it struck me, is that gender basically are the aspects of a sexual role that have to be performed, mm. that have to be done, that have, you have to present it uh, to the world in some particular way, either because you're comfortable presenting it in that particular way, or you think you should, uh, or, uh, you know, or, for what, or for whatever reason. That's what I would say. For me, that's that's what gender is, and as a as a performance, there is always a place for slippage in there. You can be uncomfortable. The gender you are assigned, so you can do something to change it. That's a great starting point to focus on performance. I think that as an anthropologist, especially, you know, I'm really interested in not just studying the present, like cultural anthropologists, but also really thinking about the very long term and looking back into pre-modern and pre-capitalist societies. And that's why it's really exciting to be in dialogue with somebody who also imagines futures. Because I feel like one of the things that is least apparent to people outside of anthropology or outside of the creative arts is just the mutability of gender because it is a performance that hasn't always been the same and is changing so fast right now. So I think um, performance is a good way to kind of get a handle on that. Absolutely. And I think talking about the history and talking about the deeper sort of structural relationship that gender has to other categories of, of experience and analysis, right? So race, class, sexuality. How do you think about gender and sexuality as these categories that we use and that we know, but that sort of only exist in relationship to those other things, whether that's in a particular context historically or in the present, or when you're building a world, Chip, like in your writing. Anthropologists 
sometimes get a bad rap because they are assumed not to be interested in history as we know it, which is to say the immediate history. Most of the history that I think of in terms of when I'm writing about things are things that I've actually seen. I have seen attitudes towards homosexuality, for instance, you know, change radically since I was a kid. I didn't get a chance to come out to either one of my parents for a whole variety of reasons, and then they died, you know. And uh, and I was uh, and I was very thankful for being gay, for instance, because it gave me a lot of the good things in my life. Although models for being gay were very different when I was young, most of the gay men that I knew uh, knew well uh, were married gay men, and so I got married too. You know, and I married a woman who, who knew that I was gay and what have you. Uh, and I knew se several others. But the notion, the notion that you could be a gay man and be connected with uh, only with another gay man, that didn't come along until, for me, until after Stonewall. You know, and so, and, and, and after Stonewall, then I did that. So that I've been together with a partner that I have for, for 27 odd years. But for the first uh, 13 or so years of my adulthood, uh, I was a married gay man. You know, and I have a daughter, and for those reasons. And those things do indeed change. And so I'm interested in how gay society or, the, or gay culture has changed over the time that I've been around. And I haven't paid too much attention to the way heterosexuality has changed and so it's something I don't know a lot about and which leaves me in a in a you know in a position where I am you know I'm kind of one-sided in what I know I have a, a one fuck buddy that goes back to the time I was about 27 outside of my regular relationship and and watching that in his relationship he's married me, I'm not married with my partner. We live together, but we haven't gotten married. This is this is a little different from the from as far as I can tell, uh, the way a lot of heterosexual societies still today yes. function. There's so many ways to think about the intersection of gender and sexuality with other kinds of difference like race and class. But I do think one of them is that, as you mentioned, it's sort of a, it's a blessing and a curse to be part of a sort of oppressed group of who's not in the norm because of that Du Bois's idea of the double vision you know that if you are a gay person you do actually know a lot about straight life you know but like straight people live in a completely different world and it's amazing to me how kind of innocent they can be and how unaware of things you know and I think that just doubles and triples and quadruples when you talk about people of color who are queer you know then there's like multiple lenses going on at the same time you know and that kind of gets me back to something I was thinking about with the last question which is about both pleasure and oppressiveness you know Chip said gender is performative and there's a part of that that's so pleasurable. I mean, that's why drag queens love putting on makeup and getting to wear high heels and stuff they can't do when they're performing masculinity. But then there's also that super oppressive thing where, you know, gender is a prison and people are trying to keep you in it. And going into doing fieldwork with indigenous people who are very oppressed in, in South America, that it would just be this sort of double prison, you know, like it's bad to be non-normative, it's bad to be a woman, it's even worse if you're a woman of color. But there's, all, there's also this weird way in which there was this kind of freedom and invisibility, you know, because I wrote about these market women 
And, you know, they're walking around and they're just, you know, I would hear people, you know, non-Indigenous people say, oh, you know, gender roles among Indigenous people are very rigid. Like, they really know, you know, what femininity and masculinity are. I'm like, really? Because, like, these market women are, like, walking around talking about themselves as being the fathers of their children, wearing men's articles of men's clothing, and they're like, well, that's just because they're cholas. I'm like, well, what does that mean, you know? So, so I, I think that those interactions of those different categories create both double oppressions, but also sometimes these windows that are super exciting and interesting. Both of you touched on some really interesting, not just kind of intersections, broadly speaking, of gender, sexuality, and where you are and who you are, but sort of how we make sense of these categories is rooted very much in where we are existing in the world and who we're existing in relationship to, right? So a lot of uh, thinkers now are thinking about how in the States, especially in the States, but certainly transnationally, the transatlantic slave trade has led to black folks to envision gender in very particular ways and blackness informing and anti-blackness in particular informing how we might understand gender or transgender. C. Riley Storton has written about this. Folks are thinking really explicitly about race and class as constitutive with, co-constitutive with gender all the time time and with sexuality all the time. So there's sort of to both of your points, depending on the context you're in, whether it's I'm hanging out with this guy and he's picking me up and he's in a relationship that means this to him, but he also has these other kinds of sexual relationships or I'm in this this context in, you know, a particular uh geographic historical environment, like in the Andes in your work, Mary, thinking about how oppression exists for people in very, very particular ways, but that also looking at, at the very particular can reveal something really interesting about the broad scale. So, you know, we don't know much about gay culture, or we know a lot about gay culture as queer folks, but we also know a lot about heterosexuality because we build gay culture in relationship to that, right? Would you say that that's true, Chip, in your writing and when you're thinking about futurity and world-making culture, do you think that, you know, marginalized folks are building in reaction to the dominant society and in reaction to what kinds of forms of power are around? Yes, I don't think I don't think you have any choice. I mean, because the power is there, and I think we are always responding to it one way or the other. We are approving of it, or we are trying. We are either going with it, or we're going against it, or we're trying to get somewhere in between. So yeah, I uh, I, I wonder. Um, for me, as someone in the academy and thinking about being a purely creative writer, which just always sounds so appealing, but also terrifying. <laughs> It seems like part of the, or a lot of the appeal is the ability to just imagine ways out of the power structures that we're in, you know? Um, I mean, for us, we never really get to fully do that. Or when we do, we check ourselves, you know, and say this is not an accurate representation of the world. But it seems like that ability to envision something that could happen is so important. But at the same time, I recognize that, you know, in your work and in really all the work of science fiction that I like to read, it still is working through the, the, those power relations that exist. So I don't know, I'm just curious how it feels to be able to imagine things that aren't here. Yeah, well, there are the things that you, there are the things that you imagine, and then there are the things that you live. Mm -hmm. And I, what, I'm, what I'm most interested in right now, and what I'm talking about now, are the things that I've, I've lived and I've mm -hmm. seen that they influence what I imagine. Uh, certainly, and I will write something that goes along with what I imagine one day, and I will and I will try to imagine something that goes exactly against what I imagined yesterday mm -hmm. in another, you know, mm -hmm. in another in another story. 
I think there's certainly room for imagining something otherwise, but also to describe exactly what is, right? Exactly what it is that we see and what we experience and what it is that we notice about our own communities and communities that are that we perceive to be different from us in whatever way, yeah, in whatever way that might be. Both of you have sort of gestured towards change over time. And um, I'm wondering if you can speak to where you think we are now. And I think, Chip, you had mentioned being in your 70s and having witnessed the shifting perceptions in an American public sphere, at least around LGBTQ or queer or gay identified people and, and totally different understandings of, that, of those categories and those experiences that have happened over time. But along with that, you know, what is this, what's the moment that we're in now when we think about gender and sexuality? I think more and more people have something to say when we bring these topics up and in just any context than ever before. So I'm wondering if you can both speak to the current moment and how you make sense of it in your work or just in your own daily lives. One of the things I'm very much aware of is how much of what is going on now does seem to be organized. There are groups of gay men who get together for sex parties and things like that, and older groups of sex, you know, of men who get together for sex parties. That was a big surprise for me to find out only a few years ago, uh, and apparently they had been around for a while. So I'm always find I'm always finding out that the world I actually live in is a lot stranger and a lot more complex than I personally ever thought it was. And that's, you know, and that, that's interesting. I uh, remember learning about a lot of the organizational things that were going on in the LGBT, in the, uh, the rainbow alphabet <laughs> uh, for a while. And I remember, you know, there, were, there would be things that made me, that were, I, I took as kind of givens. Um, the S&M branch of the gay male movement seemed to have a lot of the, uh, seemed to be the political movement in a way that I didn't see some of the less uh, flamboyant areas doing that. Um, now, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think that that was either a prejudice on my part or just a, but it was certainly something that seemed to be the case for a number of years uh, and then, uh, you know, got out otherwise. Uh, and that indeed things were going on that I had uh, not realized were going on in different ways from the way that I perceived them, with all, dare I say, of my own prejudices, my own shorthand ways of thinking about them. And in other words, my world was built up as much from prejudices and assumptions as anybody else's. You don't escape those. You just have a different set, you know, from the ones that other people do. It's, you know, obviously, it maybe it always feels like this, but it does feel like one of those best of times, worst of times moments. Like on the one hand, queerness and gender diversity is just exploding so fast, and it's so fascinating. You know, you know, my partner as a therapist is seeing these young people who just identify completely outside of all the categories that we already had. And so that's just amazing. And, you know, they're very young, so they represent a future. And yet, on the other hand, of course, you know, we have this such increasingly depressing and frightening political things happening at the state level. So it's, it, it's just, it's very confusing. It's very confusing. Um, in terms of thinking over the really long term, this sort of, I'm sort of looping back to some previous thoughts, but something that's been a transition for me maybe in the last year or two is that 
I used to really be sort of angry and frustrated that people who care a lot about race and about oppression weren't more interested in periods of time before European colonialism. You know, like I would notice that if I tried to talk about the Americas and be like, you know, we have thousands, thousands of years of history where there's just no white people. Like, you have to worry about them. They're not there, you know? And, people, you know, and then you go, oh, here's a white person doing something bad to an Indian. Oh, that's fascinating. Tell me more about that, you know? And I was like, why is there this, this sort of obsession with that moment, which is so short? Wouldn't it be more liberating to really immerse more fully in that past and use that to craft a future? And I think that that is a movement in some ways, in some areas, but the realization I've come to is that we have to work through all of the kind of traumas and the prisons that we've been in in order to get to that future or that path. I, I really appreciate what both of you um, are touching on, which I think is a couple of things. I think a lot about institutions and institutionality in my work, so I think what both of you are touching on is sort of what it looks like to codify a lot of the terms and understandings around uh, particular ideologies that have come out. So, you know, organizing various community gatherings, organizing around just difference, right? So being able to say, like, I don't know how I would use my, how I would describe my gender, but I know it's not these things that have been placed in front of me as options, and there's space for, and there's more and more space in some ways for what that um, that other option looks like, right? But at the same time, we're all sort of always already entangled in these forms of power and sort of structural inequalities that entangle us all the time. So I appreciate what you said, Chip, about taking things we uh, taking things for granted and saying, you know, no matter what position you're in, you're sort of tangled in ideology regardless and what you were saying, Mary, this way in which we have a past that we don't always excavate fully, but we do know um, how power affects us today. So a question that I'm thinking of that comes out of that, and I, I really want to move into talking about how you both think about writing, um, as somebody who's read both of your both of your writing, and I think that's a, a really interesting area that that anthropology and particular kinds of cultural anthropology can uh, really speak to in conversation with science fiction and with fiction in general. Can you describe a moment, either both of you, where you were trying to describe a situation or a character um, and you sort of were caught within lots of different ideology structures, whether they were your own or the people that you were describing, right? And what, what did that look like for you and how did you work through that? Well, I'm writing right now, so um, I think something that, that I struggle with a lot is um, wanting to write about, like right now I'm writing about these ancient, these ancient people who lived a long time ago, and I'm sort of writing against the norm, which has been to write about them in a very exoticizing and I think kind of racist way that really plays up like how weird they were. And it's like I want to really celebrate and explore and acknowledge the ways in which they do represent, what we know about them represents a kind of radical difference without falling into that trap, you know, that kind of exoticizing trap. So, yeah, and that's a struggle that for me, it, you know, it's at the level of every adjective, like that's why I'm such a slow writer, you know, so it's a constant, it's a constant issue. Yeah, the, the, I mean, one of the things that, that um, um, I remember 
suddenly uh, I think it's I think it's an idea that came from me from reading some D.H. Lawrence essay mm -hmm. who uh, is a writer who was very problematic for yes. a lot of people and certainly oh for me. <laughs> yeah. But one yeah. of the, you know, but essentially he said, and I'm I'm you know, quote, make sure you give your best arguments and your best you know, your best lines to the people who represent the people who disagree with you. You know, somehow you'll take care of them, mm -hmm. but uh, you know they will take care of them almost without trying because they agree with you. They are, you know, projections of yourself. Mm -hmm. Whereas what you have to always be aware of is the people who don't agree with you. Who in in your the characters, the people who stand for people and ways of looking at the world that you don't agree with. You know, those are the ones that you have to give the best lines to, mm -hmm. uh, and that that's the way you keep your fiction getting richer and richer and richer mm. That's rather than so getting beautiful. I love that. It's funny because, of course, like you said, Deej Lawrence is a super problematic author and a fascinating yes. one for me because, of, because, because he wrote about sexuality. But so, so like, you know, he has that famous description where the rough working class man is teaching this uptight upper class woman about her own body and he's naming all the parts, but he doesn't give her a clit, you know? And so that's the starting point for me in talking about the art that I'm looking at, where all the women have these big, visible clits, you know? But I love that statement, and I think the opposite side is also really true, at least for anthropologists, and I struggle with making this clear to students, is like, you can't make the people that you want to identify the most into your avatars, you know? So there's a tendency to make them into these better than real people, like because they're trans people of color or because they're working class people, they're just so perfect and they represent all the ideals we have about the future and what people can be. But that's not what people are actually like. Like they are a whole mix of really fucked up shit and violent tendencies and moments of meanness and short-sightedness and stupidity and, you know, and just to like acknowledge that fullness in all the people that we're writing about, you know, and all the positions within the power structure that we're describing. I think that's, like you said, that's what makes your writing rich and believable, and that's what makes it compelling, but it's so tempting not to do that, because we do want to throw our, throw our fantasies about the best into the people that we care about the most, you know? How do you make that balance when you know you're talking to and talking with power structures at play, right? So like, I hear what you're saying and that we want to paint as fullest pictures of every single person that we're describing or writing about and really situate them mm -hmm. in their context, whether that's a fictional one or one that we actually saw and experienced and, and talked about in our fieldwork. How, how do you strike that balance between recognizing the ways that particular bodies and experiences people have power and they don't, and they interact with each other? And how do you write about that and, and think about that without sort of inadvertently keeping that, you know, having the underdog kind of always be the, the, the best character, always mm -hmm. being the person who, who sort of like theoretically in the realm of scholarship, right, theoretically represents everything. Like we have to look to the most marginalized to show how power really works or how to change things. How do you strike that balance where you're really just talking about how we're all really embroiled in, like you were saying, Mary, the really fucked up shit? <laughs> Well, I think one thing is to make sure that you're not making people do some kind of work for you that they don't want to have to do, you know? Make sure that the people are real people and not just symbols of something. And for one thing, when you think about your readers, I mean, I think you've got to be writing to, like, actual embodied readers, too, you know? Because people are not going to 
believe your writing or find it credible or engaging if the people are just cardboard stereotypes, you know. And I think our, our readers, who are mostly these days like undergraduate students, you know, they're super sensitive to that. So, so I think that's one thing that could maybe, maybe think about that. Just you have to basically. It's a matter of working very hard. I think that's the yes, only thing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think you know, and that's something that, that we all share. That's 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 a task we all have to share, for better or for worse. Do you pay attention to how you describe bodies and and sort of descriptors of bodies in your writing uh, for both of you? Because I think historically, with anthropologists and and a lot of older sort of scientific racist documents that are sort of part of the the anthropological kind of archive, right? Uh, there's a lot of uncomfortable descriptors of bodies really only of the people that are without power and really marginalized mm -hmm. in the ethnographic context that they're, that they're writing from. So I'm thinking of genre conventions from slavery in the U.S. and the ways that black bodies have been described and how those conventions still run through. Like we're more apt to sort of describe somebody's body if they're somebody that we have to mark, right? If they're not a normative white cisgender male body, we mark these these various things about them. How do we? How do you think about writing about bodies in the work that you do? Well, again, as I said, it's a matter of, of paying attention to them. I do I do remember noticing in my own writing at one point that writing about a, a physical fight between a man and a woman, all the active all the active verbs came from the men and all the pat and 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 the men, and a lot of the passive verbs were associated with the women and I just had to turn around and sit down and say stop that chip you got to <laughs> turn around and you've got to give some active verbs to the woman you know this is sometime this is sometime in 59 60 61 uh, and that's a long time ago uh, and there were there were patterns that had been just you know just one had absorbed, and what did one absorb them from? One had absorbed them from reading the, reading the fiction of the 10, 15, 20 years before then. But you're always fighting what's been done before. And then when you do that, and when you actually do work, and then somebody says, my God, this is downright revolutionary, and then you don't realize it's not revolutionary. It's what other writers were doing, you know, 30 years before, because it goes in like 20-year waves, mm -hmm. uh, and to the extent if you are a reader you and you are reading what was written in the previous 20 years, there's always what is written before that uh, that is there as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so humbling to realize how great writing previously that you had missed is. And I think reading widely and constantly, you know, it's just so, it's so great. Um, and it gets us away from that progress narrative of like whatever is the latest is the newest and the first and the best um, because sometimes older texts can be so forward-thinking that's not really the right phrase but um, so out there yeah. but I think you know the answer can't be to hide either um, it's important to be a little bit out and proud and uh, the whole tradition of gay male fiction writing has been demanding the right to, to describe bodily, our queer bodily experiences in super graphic terms and just sort of saying to the straight world, like, deal with it, read or don't read, I don't care, you know, so I think that's also important. For me, something that I think academic writing can make you do is that you write too defensively. You're always writing for the gatekeepers who are going to criticize you, and that's not your readers. Your readers are those people that you don't know who are out there who are so hungry for what you want to say, and you've got to write freely for them. 
Yeah, it's like the it's, I, I remember uh, uh, listening to what is his name, poet. His name escapes me at this particular point, uh, who was older than I, uh, but sort of saying, don't worry, everything you have to tell them will be news. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and, and in, in practical terms, in terms of, in terms of students, when, when one got started teaching and what have you, yeah, most of what you had to tell them was, was going to be folks putting together the questions and the podcast, the vision for it, we're thinking about what it means to write about gender and sexuality now and what it means to really write about gender and sexuality. So I was really curious about the bodies question. I've been thinking about that, just reading historical texts and recent texts. I did a review of Mother Camp, which is a text from 1979, one of the first, not necessarily marked as trans, but uh, first ethnographic text that was working with uh, female impersonators in, uh, in the U.S., and all of the descriptions of the bodies were very, very graphic and specific, and in some ways that's a really uncomfortable thing, but in other ways that's really generative because it allows us to think about how we're writing about bodies, why we write about bodies, and I appreciate what you said, Mary, about the the tradition of gay male fiction writing and thinking about your writing chip, there's a real power in being able to sort of reclaim it back and say, like, actually, let's write about these specific things. And I think in your work, Mary, how do you sort of emphasize, no, like, this is why it's important or this is why I'm looking at representations of the clip, right? And, like, what it actually, how it shows up. And that's not a word that you read a lot, right? <laughs> it's not a word that you hear and, and, a, and it's not something that you think a lot about in writing. So I, I just sort of was thinking about all of those things. And I think I'm, I'm interested in that still and, and wondering who you're imagining yourself writing to, especially when you write about the body. Do you feel comfortable writing all these descriptions knowing that you don't know who, whose hands your book or, or article will end up in? Yeah, I think that's where, for me, like living longer is good <laughs> because, you know, your work, your work reaches audiences that you never anticipated, you know, but that only happens if you're writing stuff that is legible to somebody outside of the academy. So, you know, if you want to write stuff that's, that's super safe and where every phrase is so carefully worded so that no one could possibly take offense, you're also going to write something that almost no one's going to read, honestly. You know, Black Jacobins is a book that was written about the Haitian Revolution. And Sidman said to me, the way he liked about that book was that it was written so that somebody with a 12th grade education could read it, you know? And I was like, wow, that is such a novel thing for an academic to say, you know? So I think about that, and I think about the way that some of the stuff that I wrote you know, like it's tricky being a white American who writes about South America, and certainly there's a lot of policing of my work that has gone on in South America, which you just have to kind of accept, you know? But then the thing is, you start to realize there's this younger generation that is like, oh my God, this was so great when I read this. Like, this was something totally new. And I may have told you this already, V, because this is such a great moment, but I have this friend, Hugo Benavides, who is an Ecuadorian anthropologist, he won't live in Ecuador anymore. And, you know, he's an out gay man, very genderqueer. And um, he wrote this article that I helped him get published because it was initially rejected There's, that said that, like, the origins of the Ecuadorian nation were these painted boys who, were, who, were, who Columbus saw, who were in a boat, who were being shipped off to be, the, like, the 
dancing boys for an indigenous lord. Of course, Ecuadorians just like hate that, right? I mean, that's just like not their image of their country. Their image of their country is much more like nationalist, macho, whatever, you know? So he published that and years went by and then he got this letter, handwritten letter from this organization of trans people in rural Ecuador, like in this little fishing village. And they named themselves after the name of those boys. And they're like, we found your article and we just want to say, you told us that there's a trans history to our nation, you know? And for him, that was just like the most meaningful thing. So, you know, you're writing to the future that you don't know yet, too, you know? I, I found the name of the poet, Richard Howard, by the way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And I think what you're saying is very, very true, and also very important, that indeed, the, I remember a lot of the gay people that I knew when I was a kid. Everybody from the organist who worked for, the, who worked for my uh, father uh, in his undertaking establishment on, in, uh, on 7th Avenue in the 40s. You know, and Herman was gay. It was mm -hmm. there's no no question about, it. Uh, and was a fairly out gay man as far as he went. And I've talked, I've written art essays about him that are in books like the In the Life, the uh, uh, which which is an early collection of black gay writings, uh, where I which which I was invited to be a part of fairly long, you know, fairly long time ago. Uh, and they do come, they they do arrive as news for a lot of people. Yeah. Just the simple notion that Shakespeare was probably gay. There's a, there are still a whole lot of people from in the Midwest for whom that's going to be news. <laughs> I've written about these things, you know, as I, you know, in a book called The Motion of Light and Water and in various and sundry essays uh, in which there's, a, I have an essay called Coming Out, which among other things, it's about the way that word changed its meaning because coming out had two very specific meanings in the course of its history, and um, and it was only you know it was only with the Stonewall riots that it, the second meaning came to the fore because the first meaning was basically you came out when you had your first sexual experience. That's what coming out was. It had nothing to do with relating to, you know, straight people, telling straight people you were gay. It had something to do with what you did. And it was a thing you did with your body. You came out by, by putting your body in a certain kind of position. Those are the kinds of things that I, I've always been interested in. And they do inform the kinds of things that I will write. Uh, not only the science fiction, but a pro possibly a, lo a lot of the, uh, one of the things that I've written is, a lot of things that I've written are pornographic. And so a lot of the pornography is basically deals with writing specifically about things with the body. I'm one of the few science fiction writers I know. I, I've known several science fiction writers who have written pornography under pen names to make money, but I'm one of the few who writes it under my own name. I'm interested in, the, in, in, you know, over the life course, moving from writing fiction to writing nonfiction. That's fascinating to me that that would seem appealing. I can imagine that it does because I do think, I find as I get older that, that those memories of the past start to seem very precious and, and very much yes. like they're going to vanish if you don't write them down. Um, for me, you know, I, it's, it's hard not to fantasize about writing fiction after I retire, but constantly reminded that all of the fiction that I know of that's been written by anthropologists is just terrible. It really exposes 
how structured academic writing is and all the aspects of plot and so forth that we don't really deal with and maybe aren't very good at. So, But I love the fact that you, um, Chip, are so engaged in writing about bodies because I've been trying to read more science fiction lately because it is really interesting to me in a variety of ways. And it's not something that I liked as a young person. I think it was so associated for me with straight men. There's a lot of imagination about the larger aspects of how the society works with the technology, but there's, you know, the, the people themselves don't really have believable bodies, so. There are certain things that I try to be rigorously truthful, and I don't always succeed. You know, every once in a while I, I, I surprise myself when I suddenly will realize, wait a minute, that could not have happened that way. Uh, or I read something else, a, 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 a cousin of something that's talked about in, in a book of mine, which is uh, a book where I tried to be as, as rigorously truthful as I could, called The Motion of Light and Water, mm -hmm. uh, which, was an, which I, I, I list as an autobiographical mm -hmm. work. But, but one of the things that starts it is my, my cousin, who lived upstairs from where we lived in New York, uh, and she's still alive, but she wrote a piece that appeared, and she, she was ahead of me at the Bronx High School of Science. She went into the Bronx High School of Science, and she wrote a piece that appeared in the school literary magazine, and it was called Sleeping Beauty. It was about my father's funeral parlor, and at one point she's coming up the stairs, and she leans down to look around the edge of the door into a place where there was a, a, a dead body. Now, I knew that little room because I lived in this house. She left that house uh, and then moved up to Fish Avenue in the Bronx. But um, uh, I remember going back to check, and I realized no matter Manny was a tall girl. She was almost six feet tall. But the, the door was so far away from... The, the, the door was so far away from the bottom of the stairs, there's no way she could possibly, I, she would have to be any <laughs> tall to stand on the stairs, any one of the lowest, even the lowest stair, and lean around that. I don't know whether she, whether, whether she was changing the geography. I never got around to, got a chance to ask her. But the thing is, I, it, was, it was also the first place I realized that you can't trust everything you read. You know, and if you go back and look at it yourself, there are going to be things that are wrong with it. Uh, and so that's actually talked about in that book. You know, and one of the things that came up is about the number of things that I tried to be. It's a book in which I did try to be rigorously honest about what happened. Uh, and I still didn't, you know, and I didn't succeed with everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can almost imagine that, you know, you were talking before about about people you like and people you don't like. I can almost imagine that it could be harder to write truths about your own memories than it would be to write truths in a way when you're crafting fiction. When you're writing about your own past, it's like the, the desire to remember things in a certain way, represent them in certain ways. It would just be so overpowering, you know? Since this covers, a lot of this covers the early days of my marriage, mm. I did show the manuscript to um, mm. my, my ex-wife, who gave it a very thorough critique and pointed out lots of things, so, uh, you know, and pointed out lots of things to me that I had. I don't think there was any suggestion she made that I didn't that I didn't follow. Although she was always referring referring to things that had happened frequently, she in some of her early poems she refers to things that uh, I knew, for instance, were slightly different, mm. and. Uh, 
that uh, she had a miscarriage. Mm. Afterwards, the miscarriage, she was taken, and she was, and she, and my mother, my mother came and, and helped us, and brought her up to my mother's apartment, and put her in my sister's room, which was in the back. And somehow, Marilyn thought that she had been that this, which was the largest room in the apartment. Uh, with its own bathroom. And somehow Marilyn thought, because I was the boy, that obviously I had been given that apartment, and that it was my room that she was in. I, I think this is an area where anthropologists could learn a lot from novelists. We're really, over the last few years, we've worried a lot about misrepresenting the people that we write about, or writing about them in ways that they don't like. And I think there's a real tension there, like we can't, we're not their publicists, like we can't just only say things they want to hear, but we are super self-critical now about that responsibility. But it's like, we think we just discovered this and it's just our problem, you know? And if you look at writers of fiction and nonfiction, like they've been struggling this for years. There are so many people who've written memoirs or semi-autobiographical novels or novels. Their ex-wives, their ex-partners, their mothers, their fathers, their children are like furious with them or the town where they grew up in or, you know, and so there's such a, it's something that I think writers have been grappling with a long time and anthropologists are newcomers to the issue. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah, especially I think as uh, writing and, and like scholarship becomes more widely available, mm -hmm. we have to more intentionally contend with the power that, I mean, and that any writer has that, you know, if you if your work gets out there, you, you have a responsibility to to speak to, or at least to, to hear the responses of the people um, that you're writing about. Absolutely. Or to hear, to hear out the critique. So I appreciate, Chip, the story about having your ex-wife read the memoir and say, uh, that's not how I remember this specific thing, and you're the one who's who's writing the text and who gets the final say at the end of the day because it is your book, it's your story. It's a complicated thing where where there's no obvious answer, but certainly where we have to sort of take all of these different structures and situations into consideration. I think we probably want to just have one last question. Is that okay? Fair? Okay, thanks. <laughs> the last question I want to end with is I know some of the folks putting together the questions were thinking about activism um, and I also know from chatting with you both separately that I don't think you describe yourselves as activists so I just want to I want to ask in relationship to this broad question of activism how do you think your work could be used to make you know, substantial change in the ways that marginalized populations are treated, their experiences, etc. And this is especially on the realms of, uh, along the lines of gender and sexuality. So uh, queer bodies, trans bodies, cis women, trans women, etc. And obviously, you know, from racialized and class backgrounds from all over, how would you imagine your work making change, if at all? I will go, I will go this far. No work is popular because of its radical content. <laughs> Any work that is popular is popular because it's something that a lot of people want to hear, mm -hmm. which is that's radical, you know. But, you mm -hmm. know, uh, I wrote a book, uh, I wrote a book, it's called About Writing, mm -hmm. uh, and it's a book about writing. I've gotten a lot of praise from it from writers who basically say, they were glad to hear somebody do a book that was not about how you two can write your novel in just six weeks, but about how hard it is to write. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And it is, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least I think I've always found it hard to do. And, and, you know, and how writing is a hard profession. I have found through most of my life that having sex for me was relatively easy. Uh, there were institutions that were always that were set up for it. Uh, there were there were areas where you could go cruising. There were uh, there were movie theaters where you could go and you know and have sex and what have you. And I and I built up a, a pretty large background of having a lot of sex. And there were two or you know I would find them in New York. You know I'd go there a lot a lot. I spent a million. In that sense, I don't think I was doing anything radical or unusual. I was thinking I was doing the things that a lot of other people were doing, only not a lot of other people were talking about them. So I wrote what I could write uh, and about them, and uh, I, I know that one, one such book is called Times Square Red, Times Square Blue, and um, the, 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 the publisher is going to come out with a 20th anniversary mm. edition sometime mm. soon, which is mm. very nice. But, but I don't think of it as a very radical book. The artist David Wadarovich has pictures that he drew in the same movie balconies of the same mm-hmm. movie theaters that mm-hmm. I was writing about, <laughs> and I look, I would look at his things, and they, you know, there, there are there are David's pictures of the balcony of the uh, whatever the name of that movie theater was on Third Avenue, Variety Photo Plays movie theater on Third mm-hmm. Third Third Avenue, and you can read my accounts of the same of the movie, that movie theater and a couple of other movies around within a few blocks of it as well. Uh, the Jefferson, which was a, uh, a Spanish language movie theater where a lot of actors went on. And, uh, and the Metropole, which was another, which was a, uh, another one, which was not, which was ordinary. I, I call ordinary, I, it was English. Uh, and it was a porn theater. You do your best and you write what is it Derrida says, you know, genres are not to be mixed, which is to say you don't have to worry about them. They all are mixed. You know, they're, 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 they all arrive. What you never have is a pure genre. They aren't pure. They are, all genres are bastard genres. This, this is true. And just you have to remember that. And it's, you know, and you just, you know, you, you have to be rigorous with yourself and you have to be willing to listen to other people. Huh. That, that, that idea of listening to other people is such a complicated one because one thing I've seen thinking about feminist struggles is that a lot of women that I, that I know of an older generation who have really succeeded in doing things, they did it by not listening to other people. Like people told them, you can't do this. You will never do this. There is no room for you. Also, one of my teachers who was a black man from the Caribbean had people just tell him, like, you cannot be an anthropologist, you know? And they just went ahead and did it anyway. Um, So sometimes not listening is really important if you're gonna succeed in doing anything activist or radical. But on the other hand, some of those people later on, they had not developed the skill of being able to listen to other people and accept criticism about their work or their choices. And so, I don't know, this is an interesting question, like when do we need to listen to others and when do we need to not listen to others? And especially when you're trying to do something that is gonna be politically meaningful, I think that's such a hard question. Um, everyone has to find their own answer, I guess. Hmm. I appreciate you taking a stab at answering it, because <laughs> I think it certainly requires like a real uh, attention to what we're doing, why we're doing it, and who we're doing it for and with, right? 
So thank you so much for indulging my, my questions and for <laughs> thinking through stuff that is certainly not easy. Um, and I really appreciate the opportunity to SN Hillary to, to moderate this conversation. Well, thank you for moderating, V. It was really an honor to be um, in conversation with Chip. So. <laughs> And it was a great pleasure to be in a conversation with you. Thank you to Chip, Mary, and V for such an engaging conversation. Please stay tuned for our next episode, and thank you again for listening.